So it's uh, good to be here. Thank you very much for the invitation. And uh, again, I retired from Forest Grove. Those of you who don't know me, I retired from Forest Grove about three years ago. And in a very providential way, found my way to Horizon College and Seminary, which is just about 50 meters from here. So um, yeah, now I'm behind a lectern at Horizon, so I'm part of faculty. All of our classes are 90 minutes long. And um, so I, <laughs> I'm wondering if you should settle in. Uh, I, I don't know what to do with 20 or 25 minutes. So, um, but anyway, I, I will work with the... Uh, guidelines provided to me here. So our mission at Horizon is that of advancing God's kingdom by preparing, training Christian leaders. And so when I received the email from Pastor Bruce asking if I might be involved in speaking about one of the parables of the kingdom, uh, because we're involved in advancing the kingdom of God, I thought, yes, absolutely, I want to be in. And not only was I prepared to be involved, but I had a good sense on which parable I had an interest in speaking on. For that time, I was quite occupied with thinking about and reflecting uh, on the great blessings of what it means to be a believer in Jesus Christ. Um, the pluses, and if you are comfortable even with this word, uh, what are the big payoffs about being a believer in Jesus Christ? and uh, being a part of the kingdom of God. <clears throat> and as I was reflecting on that, I was actually, those thoughts were intersecting with a parable of the hidden treasure. So the, the text for today is Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. And I'm going to read it right away, but, um, you know, sometimes we talk about being all in, right? Or we hear other people talk about being all in, and, and the idea is, when people say that, they're 100% they're in, or maybe we might say 110% in. And so when we read this parable, as short as it is, it's only a couple of little lines here, but just think about this, this man who finds this treasure. And, and, and here's a description of a, of a person who's all in, totally in. So the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy went and sold all that he had and bought that field. And that's the parable. That's it. The man was motivated by a sense that the hidden treasure was of such immense value, it compelled him to be totally in. Sold everything he had, and then went and bought that field he would say that he was a man that was all in. So, the question is, of the sermon, so what's so valuable about the kingdom that would prompt a person to be all in? And more personally, what is so valuable about the kingdom that would compel you or me to be in? So the message is my response largely to that question. And so my approach is largely confessional. Like I said, I was thinking about this going back two or three months ago. Confessional, not in the sense I'm confessing my sins. Confessional in the sense of I'm testifying and sharing my belief in terms of the kingdom of God. What is it about the kingdom of God that compels me to be in? And then so in some ways, I'm not that far removed from Peter. So in Matthew chapter 19, verse 27, Jesus is having a conversation with his disciples and and Peter pops up and he says, well, we've left everything to follow you. 
And then he says, what then will there be for us? You know, we could look at that sort of comment by Peter and say, well, what a self-centered guy, you know? But it's a fair question for me, and I think it's a fair question for us. What then is there about the kingdom that is for us? In other words, what's the treasure? What are the components of the treasure? What's in the treasure box? So that's really the question of the sermon. And so I invite you to go on a little bit of a treasure hunt with me, at least the things that I've identified that would be a part of that. So I have four interrelated, integrated thoughts. Um, if Pastor Bruce were up here speaking on this same one, he might identify some that are a little bit different. He might have five or six. Uh, but I've come up with four integrated and interrelated thoughts about that treasure, taken from the Bible as a whole. Because when you look at this parable, the parable is really short, and it doesn't really say a lot, but, but nonetheless, that idea is there about the kingdom of God. So the very first one. Uh, I watched this, a series by a gentleman by the name of Gordon Fee, who's a New Testament prof, and I think he is retired now, a New Testament scholar. And uh, it merits watching if you wanted to see it. He is a person who speaks with a lot of intensity, a lot of energy, a lot of insight. But you would find it on YouTube. Back in 1988, he's preaching to a group of young adults, a missions conference in Europe, and he speaks about the kingdom of God over four sessions. But he says it's the rule of God, it's the reign of God, and he argues that the kingdom of God is the key framework for understanding all of the New Testament. So it's kind of a critical idea and a critical concept. And as a part of that, he also talks about the kingdom as now, but, but it is not yet, it's in the future. It is present, but it's also future. And on the now, he made this kind of simple but good observation. He said, on the now, where the king is, there is the kingdom. So as Jesus was involved in going around in ministry, where King Jesus was is where the kingdom is. And so he could declare to them that the kingdom of God is among you right now. But I flipped it around to also say where the kingdom of God is, there is the kingdom. So all these parables that talk about the kingdom of God would imply, would suggest that there's a king. There's a king. Now, it's implied here with our parable, but when you look at other portions of Scripture, if I go to Matthew, uh, the, further into Matthew, the parable of the sheep and the goats in Matthew chapter 25, it speaks of the Son of Man who will be on his glorious throne. So it's in the future. And the text explicitly speaks of Jesus as the king. So that the king will say to those on his right. Or if we were to go to the book of Revelation, the kingdom of God is far more than the gospel accounts, but you go to the book of Revelation and we get these different statements that reflect the kingship of Jesus Christ. Right there in Revelation 1.5, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth. Now, it doesn't use the language that he is the king of all kings, but he is, he is the supreme one. He's the supreme king over all the kings. But of course, when you go deeper into Revelation 19.16, on his robe and on his thigh, he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, those of you who have been with me or have heard me a number of times, you know that I 
I've, I've said this many times, but in, in the book of Revelation, that word throne is used repeatedly and frequently. Uh, of the about 50 times the word throne is used in the New Testament, 40 of those are right here in the book of Revelation. And it's kind of, you have this constant reminder to the people of God, those churches in Asia Minor, that there is someone on the throne, there is a king. And, and really important news, because the message to these people is there is suffering that is coming to them in terms of persecution. So you get this theme, not only here, with the kingdom of God, which implies that there is a king, but certainly carried further in the book of Revelation and other places as well. So, well, what's the significance of having a king? Someone who rules, someone who's in charge. I, I recently heard that the possibility will soon exist, and may or may not be totally true, but uh, there may be the possibility exists that eventually commercial airplanes and flights uh, could be operated without a pilot or pilots. And you could get on a jet, let's say, in Toronto and fly to London and uh, uh, pilotless flights uh, that would be operated from the ground. Uh, however, the report also indicated the flying public is not really ready for that yet. And uh, nor would I be really ready for that yet. <laughs> uh, there's something to be said about having someone physically at the controls. There is something to be said. No. There is much to be said about believing that someone is in charge of the world in which we live in. The opposite perspective is that of a world marked by randomness and the absence of anyone in charge. Which, quite frankly, would be a terrifying, unsettling, and troubling thought. Can you imagine this world that no one is in charge? There's something to be said about a king who's in charge of the world. And as I heard a gentleman by the name of John Wimber, who was the founder or key founder of the Vineyard Movement years ago, he often talks about King Jesus. It's the language that he used. And not a language that I really was accustomed to, but really that's, that's part of the treasure here, where there's a kingdom, where there's the kingdom of God. There is a king. And for me, that's kind of a prized piece within all of this, that you know, we're not living in a world here of randomness, but we're living in a world where there is a king. So that's, that's the first one that I identify as part of the king, kingdom of God. Second one, why did Jesus come to the earth? Why the incarnation? Why the Christmas story? What was the work of the king? The Magi were looking for the king, they were looking for the king of the Jews, to be more precise, language that so unsettled Herod. But the purpose of Jesus' coming is identified right there in the very first chapter of Matthew. So you have an angel speaking to Joseph by way of a dream, and she, Mary, will give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. The good news in all this is that God, through his son, Jesus Christ, saves people from their sins. And the story of the cross and the resurrection and the ascension is central to all of this. And the kingdom treasure for me is that there's a remedy to the problem of sin, with the outcome being the gift of righteousness. 
Now, whether that strikes you as being treasure or not depends, I guess, on how you, we view humanity and the need for salvation as well as the biblical revelation on sin. Uh, years ago, I camped out in the book of Romans for an extended period of time. Spent a lot of time meditating, reflecting, thinking about it, reviewing those verses. And there were many impressions I gained from that experience, but a couple I would cite to you. Uh, one is bad news, and the other one is the really good news. The bad news is Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And Paul emphasizes that in the book of Romans from 1.18 to 3.20. Uh, keeps coming at it and keeps coming at it in different ways that all of humanity has sinned and falls short of the glory of God. And it's reflected, of course, through the Old Testament as well. It's not just the New Testament. But there's good news. And this, and this for me, is a treasure. With all with that time that I camped out in, in this book of Romans, this is a treasure here. Romans 5.17. How much more? How much more? Will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? I don't know if that strikes as treasure to you, that's, but that's part of the treasure of the kingdom of God, right there. This one verse. Is it on the screen? I guess it is on the screen. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of of righteousness. So it's a gift. How much more will they reign in life through that relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, the King? Uh, you know, a simple illustration on this, and illustrations are all limited, and this is, illustration is limited as well, but I mean, it still speaks to me from that many years ago because this gift of righteousness is really speaking to this idea of being justified before God and and we stand totally acceptable before God. But the illustration that was used years ago, and I haven't seen it used for a long time, I guess, but, but there's God. God the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. God loves us. Uh, this hand represents humanity, and this hand represents us as well. And God wants to have this loving relationship with us as, uh, in, 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 in relationship with him. But of course, you've got sin that comes into the world. And I mean, sin is everywhere. You just see it. It's everywhere. But sin comes into the world. Not, my life is marked by sin as well. And um, if I were to just take out my phone, and let's say the, the phone has a record of all of the sin of humanity and my own sin and all of my shortcomings before God, and this is a part of my life. And so, consequently, when God wants to have fellowship with us, we've got this in issue that needs to be dealt with. Because it gets in between us. And yet the good news is, if this hand represents now, let's say, Jesus Christ, the good news, the good news, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of, the God, Lamb of God, sent in the world to take away the sins of humanity. Jesus Christ came into the world and the sins of humanity were placed on him, which then potentially leaves me righteous. Righteous, justified, it's my position. Now, I still have to work the out the implications of that with sanctification, but it leaves me righteous in the eyes of God. 
So when I think about kingdom treasure, well, this is one of them. It's kind of a key component to the whole book of Romans. The gift of righteousness. How much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Which Martin Luther discovered, which was part of the Reformation and uh, continues to be a truth that we embrace as the people of God. So there's a king, there's a throne in the world, king comes into the world. One of the things that the king does is he provides us the gift of righteousness, which is the really good news. The third one, um, Judy and my, Judy is my wife. She's right over here. Judy and I have been to the Holy Land a number of times, and we've been to Jerusalem as part of uh, those trips as well. Uh, but there are two different suggested sites where the resurrection of Jesus Christ took place. One is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, which is, uh, we may have a picture of that here right away. And uh, the other one, oh, there it is. Okay, so this is, this is millions. When, when travel is safe, millions flock to this site right here. But in the last couple of hundred years, people have been suggesting, no, it probably didn't happen here. It probably happened at the Garden Tomb, uh, which would be pictured up there. So... But either way, you know, um, they're about a kilometer apart, and uh, my sense it was probably at the first one, but it's really well pictured by the second one. So either one, whichever one that you would choose, but the question is, well, what's, what's the implication of the re resurrection of Jesus Christ for us? Um, I'm going to go back into the book of Romans, and I want to put a verse on the screen, Romans chapter 8, verse 11. And this is yet another expression of, I think, part of what is in a part of that treasure, which is of the kingdom of God. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. Now, I hope you count that as treasure, because that's really darn good news. <laughs> that's priceless, you know, in terms of... Um, my understanding is we all perish eventually. And my um, guess that's true for all of you, too. And me as well. And, I, and I've said this, and I haven't said this... I, I am not at all flippant. I mean, I, 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 um, I say this with all seriousness and intent, but... You know, when I die, and, you know, we have plots picked out in eyebrow where we'll eventually be buried and interred, but, um, uh, you know, if, we haven't worked out details of funeral services, and, uh, but we'll get to that eventually. But, uh, you know, I, I have said this publicly before, you know, when I'm, when I'm done, and I mean, and if there's viewing from my body, uh, and, the, and, and the coffin is open, uh, I would like to have Romans 8, 11 open up on, you know, my Bible, on my chest here, you know, and then highlight it in yellow, and then someone take my hand and put my finger on Romans 8, 11, <laughs> so, that, so that when, when you come to see me, those of you who will live longer than me, you'll read Romans 8, 11. Treasure, treasure. The spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. 
you can't put a value on that passage of scripture. So it's kingdom treasure for me, the anticipated resurrection from the dead. And I mean, it carries through. The resurrection idea carries through. And, the re and forgive me, I so, so much in book of Revelation, Romans and Revelation kind of, but I, I've really camped out in Revelation the last couple of years, except for the last six months. But, but, you know, we were part of a memorial service going back to last weekend, and I said a few things in that event. But, but Revelation talks a lot about death. I mean, I, I, you know, it, and, and life, uh, this resurrection idea is reflected in that. So Revelation 1.5, why is that right at the very beginning? Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead. I mean, it's going to be a dominant theme through Revelation about resurrection and the hope. And then you get the vision of Jesus Christ. And so then in 1.17.18, do not be afraid. I am the first and I'm the last. I'm the living one. I was dead. Now look, I'm alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death. In other words, even in the midst of death, we are invited not to be afraid. And then 14.13, which is a beatitude. There's seven beatitudes in Revelation. Very intentional seven beatitudes. Uh, and blessed, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. For they will rest from their labor and their deeds will follow them and the understanding is that there is a continuation of life that is there so i mean this is can the christian faith be more relevant uh, perhaps on any point uh, th this is right up there uh, you know the small group that i'm a part of judy and i there's uh, 12 of us, uh, well now I guess 11 of us that are part of that and last May, June we were going through Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright on Right Now Media Ministries and um, <coughs> in that video series N.T. Wright is talking about the resurrection of our physical bodies. So I mean we're really encouraged by this and we're really blessed by this but we have a member within our, within our small group who is ill. And eventually succumbs to that death, to that illness. So Wally Tisa and I, I'll put it, we'll put his picture on the screen right behind here. But he was very much involved in moms, part of our church family, part of our small group, and uh, passed away on June the second. And uh, but I mean, talk about this idea of the resurrection being relevant. You know, here you have a circle of friends, and suddenly you go from twelve to eleven, and he is no longer there. And yet, with all the pain and the loss and the grieving that is there, there's this, there's this hope, this hope of the resurrection, this confident expectation that there is more to life. So there's a king. There's someone on the throne. There's the gift of righteousness. There's the anticipated resurrection. And then the final one I want to just add is we have a dynamic future um, uh, there's continuity. <clears throat> the kingdom of God is both now and not yet. The now includes the presence of the king as well as his response to our sin. The future includes the resurrection from the dead as well as the new order. So it's interesting with a parable of the hidden treasure. And it's, there's, a, there's a twin one, a parallel, parallel one to it, the pearl of great value. But immediately before it, you have the parable of the weeds. And right after that, you have the parable of the net. And they're both looking to the end of the age. And a key component with the whole idea of the kingdom of God is eschatology, the end times, the eschaton, the study of end times, and the reality of end times. So it's, 
you know, the kingdom of God is now, but it's also future and eschatology is a part of it. So that even when we get to Matthew chapter 25, the last one, the parable of the sheep and the goats, when the Son of Man comes in his glory, end times, and the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne, and the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. The treasure for me, for us, includes the kingdom prepared, eternal life. So, um, again, we've enjoyed our trips to the Holy Land, but, you know, Jerusalem is such a complicated city, and so much that's happening there. One of the things I'd like to do, I think when I'm fully retired, is I, I'd love to go over the Holy Land and get a vacation rental by owner. Judy and I would go there and just hang out in Jerusalem for a month or two and just try to sort of take things in and take a different site in related to the biblical and historical world, one different site every day. As much as I want to do that, you know what is far more important and more valuable and significant than that? As much as I would enjoy visiting old Jerusalem for an extended period of time, what is more significant is hanging around the language and the talk about the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. So in chapter 21, they get this new Jerusalem from that verse right to, through to chapter 22, verse 5. And again, like I say, I've spent a lot of time in the last two, three years in the book of Revelation, and there are aspects of Revelation that are just hard to take. And it's kind of creates a lot of grief and sorrow that the world is the way it is. So, I mean, spending time meditating on the bowls of God's wrath is not like a journey in Psalm 23. It's kind of, you're in a totally different world. And it's kind of like, oh my goodness, God, how can you, and, you know, and if there's, there's got to be pain in the heart of God when you look at the bowls of God's wrath. And so I, and I spent a lot of time just, just looking at the wrath side, just so I, so I would feel that in Revelation. And, but it got to a point where I just had to, got to stop this, and I got to get into good news. And you know where I went? I went to chapter 21, 1 through to 22, 5, and just hung out there for a period of time. It's, it's the guidebook to the new Jerusalem. So as much as I might want to go to the old, old Jerusalem and but something far more significant, which I count as reality. So this isn't just wishful thinking, Revelation chapter 21. This is a guidebook for the future. And so it's all of this beautiful language about our dynamic future. So a couple of verses that I would bring to your attention. Uh, 21, 3 to 4. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. So, you know, you see all that healing ministry that Jesus does in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it's all part of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God now, but the kingdom of God future continues to carry that, but now it'll be complete. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. It'll be a dynamic future. So I, I count that as part of this uh, treasure that is there. So as we move to conclusion, the parable, the kingdom of heaven, 
is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy he went and sold all he had, and he bought that field. So, what I've identified, there's a king, there's the gift of righteousness, there's the anticipated resurrection, and there's a dynamic future. So the invitation is really to be in, in on the kingdom of God, to be all in, like this man who finds this treasure, who's so joyful, who's, who's in. And I don't get the sense um, that the, uh, the man who discovered the treasure in the field had to be motivated from without to be in. It was intrinsic to him. It was self-initiated. It was an inner drive because he discovered something about the treasure. And my sense is when we understand that the treasure that is ours, we quite readily, quite readily, willingly desire to invest our time, talent, finances, resources to be a part of the kingdom of God. So the application could, question could be, and worship team, feel free to come up here right away, directly here, but the application could be, question could be, are we aligned with the treasure of the kingdom? That would be an appropriate question to ask. But I think the more significant one might be, do we understand, appreciate, embrace, celebrate the treasure of the kingdom of God? And I think the extent to which we understand that this is treasure really determines our response and how engaged we are with the kingdom of God. So my prayer for my own life and my prayer for you is, uh, may you discover something about this treasure that is ours in the kingdom of God that um, motivates you and drives you for engagement with the kingdom of God. Amen.